My name is Arjun Rao. I am a teacher and a writer. More teacher than writer these days. And sometimes not even that. Around 10 years ago, I wrote a book called Third Best about growing up in the 90s in a boarding school. I vehemently went around declaring that it was completely fictional. This podcast is anything but. It is about the music I inherited from my father. Welcome to the songs of my father. The songs of my father has been an idea floating around in my head for a long time. This idea, like so many others, form the meandering thoughts that drip with nostalgia, deeply influenced by the notion that I might someday be able to play Johnny B. Good in a high school auditorium. For the record, I have turned, tried to learn to play the guitar twice. As a 15-year-old and then as a 35-year-old. The first song that I wanted to play was As Tears Go By. Second song that I wanted to learn to play was About a Girl. And the third song that I wanted to play, like everybody else, was Smoke on the Water. I can play none of them successfully. Besides, I, I know only one chord, A. I've realized that I'm far too lazy to develop the discipline to play the aforementioned Johnny B. Good or anything that requires immense practice. Wonder why. But then I don't give up hope. Thoughts such as these have occupied my mind as they have since 2017, the year my father died. He died in the worst way possible of cancer. And it was horrifying to watch this man, larger than life, the last man standing at every party. The one who could drink everyone under the table, eventually let go of everything. The last conversation Dad and I had was about Waterloo Sunset. And that, I suppose, was the first time the idea for this podcast took root. You see, my father couldn't remember people's names or even speak at the very end. I was surprised when he wet himself or was unfairly mean to my mother. But his music stayed with him till the end. Waterloo Sunset, that amazing track by the Kinks, was the last bit of trivia he shared with me. He said the song was about people who had missed the 60s because they were born during or just after the Second World War. I now realize I never googled that fact to see whether it was accurate. I'm glad I let my father have the last word. It was the last song I heard him sing. Dad died a few weeks later.
So you're probably wondering, why I want my MTV? Why this line and why this first episode? This is because Money for Nothing was the first song Dad and I shared. It's the first song to which I knew all the lyrics and was the first song that introduced me to political correctedness. Correctness. Political correctness. Yes. And being absolutely cool. It was also when I believed, embarrassingly, that Sting was like the hall. Or maybe the oats of Dire Straits. I'm not sure how the dynamic worked between those two. But yes, sadly... Regarda de Blanc was discovered by me much later, and walking on the moon fed the little boy astronaut dreams that I had. <laughs> you, you have to forgive the eight-year-old that was me. You know, we had this Hall & Oates album at home at the time. Like so many of their albums, just a picture of both of them on the cover, blue background. Um, yeah. <laughs> My research has led me to believe that the Hall & Oates album was rock and soul, Part 1. Never found part 2. Never went looking for it. Certainly wasn't at home. Because I probably would have heard it. But yeah. It was, is, a great compilation. And for some reason, again, very weird. The first, and for a long time, only Holland Note song I knew was Maneater. Which is the opening track on this album. You know... I have recently rediscovered 80s pop and I find that I'm almost ready to completely embrace the decade of my birth. I've always been a 90s music guy, determined to focus on music I discovered in college and school and, you know, life in general. I think some of it was was a statement against all the amazing music my father always listened to because all the music he listened to was cool. So I had to find stuff that was cool on its own, stuff that was mine, you know, not his. And I think that had a huge impact on a lot of the choices I made. And it's only now as an adult that I'm discovering music that I probably should have paid more attention to or would have. Was I not trying to prove a point when I was a kid? I think discovering the music of the 80s during this never-ending lockdown has been phenomenal. The music, not the lockdown. Now imagine this. Delhi. Early 1980s. Lodi Colony. Not the cool Lodi colony of the modern Meherjan market and its restaurants and bars and designer stores, but the Lodi colony of ghastly government housing and rows of colony markets. I have vague memories of this time. Beige housing. You know, that that typical thing that you see in so many parts of Delhi, but just the worst quality of it. According to my parents, the house we lived in was tiny and we barely fit. To me, that place was a palace. And at no time was it larger than when my parents played loud music that reverberated through the house on this tiny silver tape deck. I don't know if you remember this incredible Philips ad from the early 90s. There I go, 90s stuff. 
there's Highway Star, the iconic Deep Purple song playing off the absolutely fantastic album Machine Head. Deep Purple's one album which most people could be forgiven for assuming is their best off album, especially since it has Smoke on the Water, which of course is the song that all aspiring guitarists want to learn, including yours truly who failed miserably. Though ours was not a Philips powerhouse, I don't even think those things existed back then, and we probably couldn't afford them. Um, It was really, really loud. I'd like to say that the tape deck was a Sanyo, but it could have been a Sansui, or it it could have even been an Iowa, though I may be confusing this with a Walkman I had at some point. I think there is a whole podcast worth of material on electronics available and snuck into India by relatives friends and general well-wishers who knew you had no money and yet were keen to let you feel like you had more than some. I feel like this is something that we were bequeathed by an uncle of my father's. It was silver, it was tiny, but it packed a mammoth punch. Another thing about growing up in the 90s, well, 80s in India, it was 80s and 90s, though the 90s were a little better, because I bought my first tapes then, a story for another day. But in the 80s, there were no original tapes available anywhere. Or maybe there were, but we just couldn't afford them. I recall recorded tapes on Sony or Meltrack cassettes being recorded and labeled in dad's worm-like yet authoritative handwriting. It often felt like we had thousands of these tapes, but in reality, I think it was maybe a hundred maybe less. But I can tell you that the house was never quiet. Speaking of quiet, an aside. My father told me a story about waking up in Bristol or London in the late 1980s. I mean, it's it's not like he went to sleep in Allodhi Road house and woke up in London, but he happened to be there. So, uh, London, or maybe Bristol. If London, then at the home of his friend Simon, and if Bristol, then Stephen. And he tells me that it was really early in the morning, but I feel like it was a reasonable hour and that he was just hungover. Extraordinarily hungover or not, is something we will never know, but hungover, I believe he was, in retrospect. So he tells me, the room was dark, and all he could hear was this thumping sound all around him. It was coming in through the walls and bursting in. He opens the door, goes downstairs, I I think, I I recall maybe to the next room, well, definitely outside the room, it's at the top of the stairs, and he hears Bullet the Blue Sky for the first time. Man, that must have been something. Do I have heard it as it was releasing? getting airplay, and you too on the way to becoming one of the greatest pop acts of all time. And, you know, if you're going to fight me on that one, bring it on. (laughs) I can't figure out why dad didn't play more of Joshua Tree at home once he was back in Delhi, forcing me to find you two and discover discover them on my own. But then, those would have also been his songs. So I suppose... Thank you, Dad. Back to the noise in the house. Lodi Road, circa 1980s. 
No one else you met in that neighborhood were people either of my parents could really hang out with. And yet, to make life work, they continue to live there. I recall being taken everywhere. If my parents went out, I was right there. If they stayed in, that's where I was. I had no life that was really separate from them. Now, I, I don't know if, you know, younger than a 10-year-old or, you know, whatever age I was when I went to boarding school, whether, you know, this whole sense of independence had already evolved or maybe I was made that way. I kind of needed that space to be myself. I remember once uh, um, I came back from school and my mother asked me, you know, I, I lay down in a, in a, in a dark room and I closed my eyes and I was on the bed and my mother asked me, what are you doing? And I said, I'm rewinding. I suppose I heard my dad say someday that he was unwinding and he should be left alone. I recall myself wanting to do that kind of stuff a lot. If my parents did anything, I was the baggage that went along with them everywhere I went. However, except for one, well, I suppose it was many, but the one that I really hold against them was this. For one terrible night, they went to Jawaharlal Nehru Stadium to hear <clears throat> Bruce Springsteen, Sting, who I now, by now knew was just awesome, Peter Gabriel, and weirdly enough, Tracy Chapman, huh, on the same bill. On the same bill in India. I remember hearing the music all the way home. I mean, if you know the geography, Jawaharlal Nehru Stadium is like a longish walk from Lodi Colony. It was disgusting to have left a child at home all alone just like that. What happened to all those nights when I was dragged unwittingly to parties where my parents had fun and I had to kind of sit around grumpily with all the other kids over there and dinners and worst of all, weddings. It would be years before I discovered Bruce Springsteen. You know, there's a whole series of stories I can tell you about my father's mistrust of American musicians. Very selective mistrust, but very high on that list is Bob Dylan. I'm going to tell you that story. Not today, but I will tell you that story. So, back to the noise in the house. It was all around. All around. The weekends were the best. Working a government job, dad was always home on the weekends. And that meant music. Since I mentioned Peter Gabriel, I suppose I should mention Genesis. I recall walking into the drawing room one morning to hear Genesis's eponymous album playing. Mama terrified me. Yes, this is without Peter Gabriel. Yes, this is with Phil Collins. And yes, it was frightening. It still gives me goosebumps. The manner in which the synths creep up on you. That loud drumming. And of course, Phil Collins's bizarre laugh or guttural, visceral sound was enough to frighten a child. Like I said, that tiny music system could make a lot of noise. By the way, another aside. One of my father's favorite stories about my mother is the fact that she went to sleep 
at a Genesis concert in the 1970s when she was living and studying in America. Apparently, she'd been working too hard, studying, and just fell asleep halfway through. I actually do not know which song. Never asked her. She doesn't like asking, being asked about this. And I'm not even sure whether Peter Gabriel was still with Genesis at this point. Like I said, my mom doesn't like to hear this story too much. But I think it's awesome. If you don't like a band, you don't like what you're going through, yes, you will fall asleep. Which brings me right back to I Want My MTV, the song that kept me up most nights. I Want My MTV is what I thought Money For Nothing was called for the longest time. I had no idea what MTV was. This is India, 1980s. But this was the first song, like I said, to which I knew all the lyrics, including all the politically incorrect ones. I mean, the politically incorrect now. But I suppose Mark Knopfler thought he knew what he was doing when he first released the song. So imagine my shameful surprise when I heard a radio edit at boarding school and having to defend the fact that I actually did know all the lyrics. Imagine me, 11 years old, like an obnoxious 11-year-old boy. All boys are obnoxious at 11. Not knowing the context of the words in that original third verse, yelling and subsequently crying, trying to prove that I know all the lyrics to the song. God, kids are mean. Hmm. I recall standing in the middle of my parents' parties, them and their friends dancing. Me, standing on a table, playing air guitar, singing all the lyrics to Money for Nothing. One of the greatest nights of my life. I think it was my birthday, which was probably the only reason why I was allowed out at that hour. And post-rocking it out, (laughs) I, I was sent back to my room. The room where sleeping kids of the other parents at that party were also dumped. I mean, this has to be 1985 or 86 or somewhere there. (laughs) My parents were nearly 10 years younger than I am now. Sometimes I marvel at that. I can't even imagine my father at 30 trying to figure out life. And I suppose he was making a mess of things, just like everyone else has always done. He was grossly underpaid, definitely didn't have any savings and could barely afford anything. But I just couldn't tell. I never starved. I never went to school without books and uniform. I mean, what else does a kid need? Had a fun time growing up and generally had enough to read and, you know, whatever else kids need. But... It must have been tough for my parents who would have wondered at 30, man, is this what it's going to be like? This kid who sings money for nothing and eats hamburgers when we give him money for notebooks? Honestly, I think it's the music that saved them. Music that was recorded on cassettes and then sometimes re-recorded over. Well, as long as the tabs weren't out. If you did not understand that statement, then I hate you. And you're young, too, far too young to be listening to this anyway. Everyone shared the stash of music they had, freely. I mean, how else were you going to hear great music wherever you went? There were also the legendary video and audio stores in the local neighborhood that you could go to. And the one that we went to was Joshi Stores in Jorbag. Again, 
I have to mention that this is before Jorbag became cool and hipster and whatever else it is today. The steakhouse and the bookshop were there, I think, as was the world's greatest bakery, the Chocolate Wheel, and the world's greatest restaurant, Mini Mughal. These places are responsible for a lifetime search for the perfect lemon tart and butter chicken, respectively. (laughs) As I am creating this podcast, I am discovering that there are many more podcasts I need to be able to create. By the way, in case you're wondering, aside three, the finest lemon tarts are currently available at Angelina's in Paris. There's a bloody long line to get into that place. It is overpriced, but it is fabulous. And it's the greatest thing about Dubai because there's one there. So if you are ever able to travel again, and if we are ever allowed on board aircrafts again that go outside of our country, this is something that you should go and check out. The greatest butter chicken, on the other hand. Ah, I am still looking. Joshi stores. Joshi stores used to have the latest movies, as he put it, which I'm sure was a euphemism for pirated films. I bet you thought I was going to say porn. Pirated films. He would record stuff that was played on TV abroad and somehow have a network that would bring it into India. Legendary indeed. While I'm definitely certain that this is how I saw most films at the time, late Sunday mornings and into the afternoon, after He-Man, with that brilliantly infectious opening sequence had finished. And then, of course, Mahabharat, again, with everything that defined us as a country for a long time. And I just discovered, a few days ago, my wife was telling me about how Star Trek, the original one, used to play on TVs the same morning. I have zero recollection of this and I just cannot understand why. I wonder whether this is why I like Star Wars that much more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can you can add it to the comments down below. Tell me how much you hate me because of that. But yeah, I I, I was really surprised. Though we had a conversation about, and I seem to be the only person who remembers this brilliant show called Space Station Sigma which was like this rip-off of, I'm assuming, Star Trek, uh, made in India only. But, God, this really brings back memories. After this Sunday morning madness where we would stand with sticks instead of swords and say He-Man and the masters of the universe, the whole family would gather around this really cool retro orange-colored Tesla TV. That screen was smaller than desktops that I have now, but it provided us with some extraordinary joy. Joshi stores would also rent out VCRs and VCPs. God, I can almost imagine some of my students asking me what those initials represent. Mercifully, there are a whole host of TV shows that have suddenly emerged that are set in the 80s. Stranger Things, Young Sheldon, the Americans, the Goldbergs, that, you know, suddenly the 80s seemed to be everywhere. Of course, you can just go and watch all the brilliant movies that were made in the 80s and wonder why everyone's talking in the phones stuck on walls. Speaking of videos and walls, I'm not going to talk about the number of times I saw 36 Chambers of Shaolin, but I am going to talk about how inexplicable it is that Joshi stores 
managed to get hands on copies of live concert films, which is how, for the first time in my life, I saw Mark Knopfler rocking the headband and then, on a totally different day, a rust color suit. Though I think the latter memory is confused with his performance at Live in in Nebworth, which is frankly one of the greatest concerts I've ever seen. I have to mention, when I say seen, I mean on video, and then repeatedly on YouTube. But why is this one of the world's greatest concerts first? Because I saw Pink Floyd perform. I didn't understand any of their music, but I thought it was just the most amazing thing. Pigs flying, hospital beds being, you know, ferreted all over the stage, walls come crashing down, puppet shows, lasers. I mean, how can you not like what you see? My father, by the way, had already seen them live in Paris with the Palace of Versailles as their backdrop, which I just think is insane. He pretended to be a roadie, he claimed, and went in carrying a speaker on his shoulder. Yeah, that guy. My dad could really put on an accent when he wanted to. And his French was fairly fluent since he was living in Paris at the time. Yeah, I suppose it has to be true. Rockstar. I can go on for hours and hours about this concert and have just discovered that Pink Floyd has released a version of that headline concert this year, in April, which means that I'm going to go down another spiral at some point this year. So Pink Floyd played at Nebworth. Paul McCartney played. A bunch of Beatles numbers. Dire Straits played at Nebworth and killed it. Obviously. Please, please, please listen to Think I Love You Too Much. It was written for the On Every Street sessions, but never recorded for the album. Eventually, Dire Straits only played it on tours and in concert, with this version being the most influential in the life of the song. I mean, it just became the prototype for every other version of their performance from here on out. Eric Clapton played along on this version. Eric Clapton and Mark Knopfler jammed. They are sublime and explosive and subtle at the same time. It's almost like each of them is trying to show the world who can squeeze more chords into a single moment. They're both fighting each other to be at the back of the stage, almost as if each one is worried they may upstage the other. And besides, Eric Clapton plays by himself also. A word about this monster. It's bizarre to think of him as being too ill to play any longer. And after the struggles he's had with addiction and personal tragedy, it's in this concert that it seems like, and I think the personal tragedy was was yet to come, which is why it just seems like everything might just be okay. Besides, Eric Clapton is killing it in a pink suit. Yes, go check it out. And then he kills tearing us apart. Oh boy. (sighs) But the guy who stole that concert for me was Phil Collins. He first placed Susudio, a word I've been trying to find the meaning of all my life. 
And then, along with Genesis, he played Turn It On. The song itself is okay in the typical 80s pop stuff. But the medley that he threw in along with it, holy shit. If you haven't heard it, please, please, please do. Well, I'll leave you with the immortal words of Jake and Elwood Blues and Mr. Solomon Burke, who personally came to me one day. He said to me, he said, Phil, he said, listen, he said, Everybody needs He tries to look and sound like a blues brother. And if you don't think he looks like John Belushi on that day, man, that's crazy. This medley taught me more songs, including, well, at least a couple of lines or at least the chorus of In the Midnight Hour, Everybody Needs Somebody to Love, Reach Out, I'll Be There, Satisfaction, Bizarrely Enough, Yes, and left me wondering why Elton John, who also played that day, didn't sing Pinball Wizard along with him. So, despite it all, despite living so far away from it all, I managed to hear all these brilliant musicians and see them live on ancient TVs, VCRs and music systems along with my father. I should also mention that I was not allowed to touch, not even on pain of death, any of these devices. I had to beg, beg for special permission to press play after the tape had been placed in the tape deck. You know, once, and if you've seen a two-tape tape deck on tape B or tape 2, uh, depending on what kind of music system you had, you had a play button, but rec- next to it, there was a record button, which you had to kind of press record and play together. I, I'm, I'm sure you can see where this is going. As a kid, you can imagine what I tried. And if you were a kid growing up, In the 80s, you can imagine what the outcome of my recording over a tape of, and I remember it so clearly, Jesus Christ Superstar was. By the way, Jesus Christ Superstar, if you haven't heard it, oh man, please go and hear the original recording with Ian Gillian playing the role of Jesus, which is just another... Oh, God, I'm going to hear that after this. Right. But back to the story about not being able to press buttons on the music system. I had to beg for special permission to press play after the tape had been placed in the tape deck. You know, my my 30-year-old father, he would have been horrified to see my 60-year-old father who was so cavalier with his stuff. You know, he would just toss his phone on the bed and toss his iPad here. (laughs) But that's life, I suppose. You grow older and discover that the purpose behind the music you listen to is not to hoard it and keep it with you, but to share it far and wide and let people make of it what they can. Not everybody will respond to it in the same way and not everybody will understand why it's such a big deal to you. Some of those magical songs and sounds have weaved their way into your consciousness and memory in a way that is totally unique to you. 
No one else will be able to make sense of the opening bars of Money for Nothing the way I can. And for you, there will be some song or songs or albums that are a part of who you are. You hear them and you're transported to that moment. And as we slowly start to find life after this pandemic, don't forget to hold on to who you are, who you were, and who you will become. This is Arjun Rao, and this was the songs of my father. <laughs>